Thank you, Ethan, and to everybody else who's led in worship today. We appreciate that, and thank you for being here. I hope your week is off to a great start. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, I want you to join me in Mark chapter 13. And while you do that, let me just offer a word of thanks to everybody who worked so hard yesterday. Tony mentioned in his prayer, uh, Karen's share took place yesterday. There was also a food pantry giveaway yesterday, and then... Uh, our youth group met at the church building yesterday for their Christmas party and to play games and various other things that I've not been told about. But uh, I appreciate Andrew and Tony spent a good part of the day here yesterday, and Lacey Rice, who always does so much work on Karen Share, uh, be sure to thank her for that. Um, this is a program that, that's been going on for a number of years here at Wilshire. And, you know, we do a lot of stuff. We do a lot of good stuff in the community, uh, VBS, Karen Share, Food Bank, School Supply. And sometimes you wonder if it's making a difference if, if people see it. And, and God does not call us and, and judge us based on the outcomes. He calls us to serve, and he takes care of that. But yesterday, Delina told me about a, a woman who was here for the Karen Share uh, she had a long list of names of, of kids to get gifts for, and she said she's been living in the community. She lives across the street in the Hope Crossing, and for 12 years she's lived there, and she's fostered children. And she said she has been to our Karen Share and our school supply all 12 years and wanted us to know what a blessing it is to her. Um, I don't know if we will ever baptize someone from those efforts. But what I do know is that what we are doing is showing the love and hospitality of Christ. And that's all we're called to do. Uh, and it was, it was encouraging to hear that someone is seeing that and it is blessing others. And I know there are lots more people, but thank you for what you do. There were at least 25 other people here yesterday from Wilshire uh, preparing breakfast, preparing bags, doing all sorts of stuff. So if you were one of those people, thank you. And if you weren't one of those people, be sure to thank those who were, and I hope you'll find an opportunity to be part of that in the future. A lot of great ministry going on. Well, every nation, every, every group of people have a set of dates on the calendar that they probably would not have put there. In fact, I know they wouldn't have put there themselves, but they're there because of something that's happened in our past, something we'd rather not have happened has left this an indelible and impactful mark on our calendars. Just saying the dates in and of themselves brings up the pain. This past week, our country remembered yet again December 7th, a day that will live in infamy. The attack on Pearl Harbor that so changed the course of this nation in a lot of different ways engaged us into a world war it impacted lives and families and nations. If I were to say to you, April 19th, that brings up scars and memories of a tragic bomb that went off in the heart of our own city not very many miles from here. September 11th, just those dates and just those numbers bring up painful memories of things that have changed our lives. In our country. 
the first century world, they had their own set of dates. They may not have been as clearly marked on a calendar, but they knew the history, they knew the events, they knew something that had impacted them. Talk to Jewish people, and they could have remembered, maybe not the calendar date, because they didn't keep time like that, but 586, 587, when the Babylonian army marched into Jerusalem and leveled that city, changed the nation. The temple that they had, the place where they worshiped, forever changed, leveled, and thus began Babylonian exile. For the next 70, 80 years, the Jewish people had to live away from their land in a foreign land, wondering where's God, what's God doing, when's God going to keep his promises. That left a mark. This past Friday, in our own country, or in our, in our own culture, around the world, the Jewish people began celebrating Hanukkah. Hanukkah is based off a series of events that happens between your Old Testament and New Testament. Again, the desecration of their temple and this miraculous outpouring of oil and the celebration of the menorah lighting. It's a a beautiful story. It's a story that even Jesus remembers in the New Testament. Purim. Recall back to the story of Esther and how God delivers his people. These dates just pour out on their calendar. Because so much has happened. But there was one date in Mark chapter 13 that had not come just yet. But Jesus told them it was coming. And within 40 years of Jesus talking about what he does in in Mark Mark chapter 13, it would be a date that would forever change the Jewish nation, and the church's relationship to the Jewish people. In fact, one one author said that this date, AD 70, was a catastrophe with almost unparalleled consequence for Jews, Christians, and indeed all of subsequent history. He's not wrong. If you've turned on your TV and watched the evening news, You've seen continued ripples of what Jesus mentions in Mark 13. This endless cycle of violence that's happening in Israel between the Israelis and the Palestinians, between the Jewish people, the the Jewish government, Israeli government, and the Gaza Strip, is all somewhat ripples of what Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 13. American foreign policy is largely based, I believe, on a misunderstanding of what Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 13. There's a lot of anti-Semitism in our culture and around the world today that has no place among anyone who names the name of God. And it's largely based on a misunderstanding of Mark 13. So sometimes you read the Bible and you think this was once upon a time in a land far, far away. What does it matter to us? And I'm telling you today, when you read Mark 13, you need to know that what Jesus talks about in this text continues to ripple down to what we experience even today. Well, what's really interesting is the event Jesus mentions is the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in AD 70. This isn't the first time Jerusalem gets destroyed. It's destroyed in 587, 587 years before Jesus is born. It's 
It's destroyed yet again between the Testaments. It's rebuilt, and it's going to be destroyed in AD 70. But no one in Jesus' day thought that would ever happen. And it was one of the most destructive, impactful, painful experiences for the Jewish people. Most of what we know about the destruction of Jerusalem in this time comes from a historian by the name of Josephus. I won't bore you with all the history. Actually, it's quite fascinating. But Josephus was actually a Jewish general fighting against Rome. And when, during a rebellion that starts in 66 AD, when the Romans began to take over, Josephus in this really interesting story, ends up surrendering to the Romans and becomes a historian writing about Jewish wars. And Josephus tells us about these events in Jerusalem. And he writes a lot about it. The Romans had encircled Jerusalem and for four months began the process of starving the people there. Unfortunately, this happened right as Passover was beginning. And so Jerusalem swelled to be significantly larger in population than it normally would have been. And the Romans, seeing the opportunity, surrounded the city, built a siege wall around it, and slowly waited for people to starve to death. And Josephus tells us the effects of this moment. In the spring of 70 AD, the Jews were in Jerusalem, desperately starving. And Josephus explains what it was like inside. Now of those that perished by famine in the city, the number was prodigious. And the miseries they underwent were unspeakable. For if so much of a shadow of any food did anywhere appear, a war was commenced presently. And the dearest friends fell fighting one with another about it, snatching from each other the most miserable supports of life. Nor would men believe that those who were dying had no food, but the robbers would search them when they were expiring, lest anyone should have concealed food in their bosoms and counterfeited dying. Nay, these robbers gaped for want and ran about stumbling and staggering along, like mad dogs and reeling against the doors of the house like drunken men. They would also, in the great distress they were in, rush into the very same houses two or three times in one of the same day. Moreover, their hunger was so intolerable that it obliged them to chew everything, while they gathered such things as the most sordid animals would not touch and endured to eat them. Nor did they at length abstain from girdles and shoes and the very leather which belonged on their shields they would pull off and gnaw. And just outside the city was the great and mighty Roman army, led by a man by the name of Titus Vespasian, who had built this siege wall to make sure nobody could come out of this city. And after four months of this siege, Titus, and the future Titus, who was a general and future Roman emperor, he gave the order to breach the walls. And again, listen to what Josephus said happened. The soldiers themselves, through rage and bitterness, nailed up their victims in various postures as a grim joke, till owing to the vast numbers, there was no more room for crosses and no crosses for the bodies. Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, 
because there remain none to be objects of their fury, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. These Romans put the Jews to flight and proceeded as, they, as far as the holy house itself, at which time one of the soldiers, without staying for any orders and without any concern or dread upon him at so great an undertaking, being hurried by a certain divine fury, he snatched some out of what materials were on fire, and being lifted up by another soldier, he set fire to a golden window, through which there was passage to the rooms that were round about the holy house on the hillside north of it. As the flames went up, the Jews made a great clamor, such as so mighty an affliction required, and ran together to prevent it. And now they spared not their lives any longer, nor suffered anything to restrain their force, since that holy house was perishing. Thus it was the holy house burnt down. Nor can one imagine anything greater or more terrible than this noise. For there was at once a shout of the Roman legions, who were marching all together, and a sad clamor of the seditious, who were now surrounded with fire and sword. The people under great consternation made sad moans at the calamity they were under. Yet was the misery itself more terrible than this disorder, for no one would have thought that the hill itself on which the temple stood was seething hot as full as fire on every part of it. When all was said and done, there were 97,000 Jewish people carted out of Jerusalem and sent to slavery in Egypt. And it is estimated that 1.1 million Jews died in the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. That leaves a mark on a national conscience. And it has left a mark through history. Now I'm guessing that when you woke up this morning, you weren't excited to come listen to the story of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But Jim's been taking us through the book of Mark, and if you're in Mark chapter 13, I want you to know the context in which this story of Mark 13 unfolds. Because what happens in Mark 13 is Jesus preparing his disciples and his followers for this event that would happen 40 years later. But there's something else about Mark 13 I want you to know. It has been abused by a lot of people today. I've shared with some of you that one of the worst haircuts I've ever gotten in my life was because of Mark 13. I've told some of you this, but when you're a preacher and you go in to get your hair cut, it's always a dangerous thing when they ask you, so what do you do for a living? Because the moment you say, I'm a minister, there are going to be a various different reactions to that. Some are going to be quite intrigued, and they're going to begin asking you questions, and what do you think, and I've always believed this, or I'm not really religious, and it opens wonderful doors for conversations. Some people don't believe in God, don't, don't care about the church, and they'll leave you alone and just cut your hair. But what I've also learned is, it's not a good time for theological discourse. Because the moment 
Several years ago, the stylist said, so you're a minister, do you think we're living in the last days? I said, well, I do, but not the way most people think that. He disagreed, and he began cutting. And he brought up Mark chapter 13, and there in the text, as you read it, you'll see, you heard it this morning when Tim read the text about there will be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes. And he said, see, that's all happening today. I said, yes, it is happening, but what was Jesus talking about? And he kept cutting. And I was trying to show him that Jesus is not talking about the end of the world. That in Mark chapter 13, Jesus has something else in mind. That Jesus is not talking about the end of all things and the space-time continuum. That Jesus was specifically talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He disagreed, and he kept cutting. I didn't have much hair left at the end of that conversation. But what he believed is what a lot of other people believe about this text. And as you watch the news and you listen to people talk today, they'll tell you, I think we're living in the end times because, because Jesus said there would be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes. There'll be people claiming to be the Messiah and, and all of these things happening. And that's exactly what Jesus said, but he was not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And I want you to know why, and I want you to see why this is so significant in the story of Jesus. Mark 13 opens up after Jesus has been having these conversations with his disciples and with temple authorities. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he enters Jerusalem just like the conquering king is supposed to. He goes to the temple, and in an act of prophetic imagination, he cleanses the temple. What he's telling the people is this temple is corrupt. That this is not where you meet God. It's where you're supposed to meet God, but it's not where God can be found. You have taken this temple that's supposed to be this holy meeting of God. And you have turned it into a den of thieves. A place where people should come experience God. And a place where people should come receive forgiveness of sins and blessings from God. And you're here treating this like your own place to count your loot. And he cleanses the temple as a form of cursing the temple. And then he gives various conversations throughout Mark, interacting with all these people who are supposed to be in control of the religious hierarchy and controlling the religious thing. And Jesus says, they're ruining this place. Just look at the way they're treating widows. They're supposed to be a place of mercy, and they're standing here, and they're watching widows give their last might. And instead of showing her mercy, they're taking her money. That's not what this temple is supposed to be about. And then as the chapter closes in Matthew or Mark chapter 12, he tells this story yet again uh, of a fig tree. And if, if you're attuned to the Old Testament, when, when God speaks of fig trees, it's often imagery used in the story of his own people. When Mark 13 starts, it sounds to me like the disciples realize Jesus is in something of a bad mood. Because as the chapter begins, it says that one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these large stones and what large buildings. Isn't this a beautiful, magnificent place? You ever tried to cheer someone up who wants nothing to do with that? 
Jesus, look at this temple, and it was beautiful. And Jesus says, yep, every one of these stones are going to be laid down. This place will be abandoned. Didn't expect that from Jesus. But if you followed his stories, you could see it coming. He had told this story at the beginning of chapter 12 of Mark about this man who built a vineyard and he sent his slaves to check in on it. They killed his slaves. He sent some more slaves and they killed them. Ran them off. And he says, I'll send my son, the one who will inherit this. Surely they'll listen to him. And they killed his son. And in that parable, Jesus says, this city will be burned and it will be given to someone else. So you start Mark 13. And Jesus tells them it's going to be destroyed. That people are going to come. There are going to be wars and rumors of wars. There are going to be people claiming to be the Messiah. Don't buy it. You know that's not true. All of this has to happen, but that's not a sign of the end. And if you look at Mark 13, verse 14, listen to the advice Jesus gives them. When you see the desecrating sacrilege set up where it ought not be. If we were to read Luke, Luke just tells you plainly, that means when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. When you see that happening, those in Judea must flee to the mountains. If you're on the housetop, don't go down or enter the house to make anything away. The one in the field, don't go back to get a coat. If you're pregnant, that's not good. If you're nursing, that's not good either. Pray that it's not in the wintertime. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus is talking about the end of the world... What difference does that make? What difference does it make if Jesus comes and you're in the rooftop or you're nursing a child or it's wintertime? If this is the end of the world, there's no difference in that. But if you're talking about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, it makes all the difference in the world. Jesus says, don't buy any of this. There are going to be false messiahs and false prophets They're going to produce signs and omens to lead people astray. You know better than that. Don't buy it. And be alert. I've already told you everything. And then he says, verse 24, In those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be failing, falling from heaven, the powers of heavens will be shaken. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. They will send out angels and gather the elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven. I know what you're thinking. That sure sounds like the end of the world. Unless you know Jewish Old Testament scripture. Unless you realize that's the same way the destruction of Babylon was described. The same way that the destruction of Assyria was described. The same language that Isaiah and Malachi and Joel use when something so earth-shattering happens. 
it's like the sun was flipped off and the moon was turned off and the stars fell from the sky. And he's telling his disciples, that's what's going to happen to this city. This is language in a remarkable turn that was often used to describe the enemies of God in the form of Assyria and Egypt and Babylon. But here it's being used to describe his own city. Jerusalem, which is supposed to be a city of God, a place of blessing and a place where God lives, has so distorted the gospel of mercy and justice and peace that God is now going to treat his city the way he has treated all other enemies in the past. It's a strange text, and it's not one we like to read often. But it's one whose message we need to listen to. When these events of AD 70 happened, there were two things powerfully vindicated, vindicated by God. Number one, the reason Jerusalem was destroyed, according to Jesus is because they rejected God's Messiah. When the Christians watched that beautiful temple go up in flames, and they watched this city of Jerusalem that's had this powerful Old Testament story and legacy burn to the ground, and while Jewish people were saying, how could God do this? The answer that Jesus gave is because they rejected the Son of God. When Jesus rode into that city and Jesus offered peace and Jesus offered forgiveness and mercy and those religious leaders turned their back on the mission and story of God, God said, you will face the judgment that I have given to other nations. That's why it happened. The second reason, or the second thing, when you see and read this horrific stories of Scripture or of others talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, is it vindicated the people of God, the followers of Jesus. It's interesting, when you read this language in Mark chapter 13, Jesus says, look, when you see all this about to take place, don't go inside. Don't take up arms to fight going to be a losing battle you get out of dodge and you go to the hills it's really interesting in secular history to note we are unaware of any christians who died in the destruction of jerusalem there's no mention of it there may have been some but for the large part tradition holds second and third century that christians knew what was coming and they ran to a place called Pella in the Transjordan Valley. And what Jesus is telling the people are, my followers are now the true place of God's dwelling. It's not in this city. It's not in this temple. It's in these people. Now, Jesus told this story, Mark 13, 37 to 40 years before it happened. 
And as the Jewish nation was reeling and people were trying to figure out what was happening, God's people knew all along. That city rejected God's son. It's just like the parable. It's just like the fig tree. It's just like Jesus said it would be. My dwelling is with my followers. And we are heirs to that legacy today. If you're a Christian and a follower of Jesus, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is vindication that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's vindication that His disciples and His followers are the true presence of God in the world today. I know it's not an exciting sermon, but when you watch the news and you see what continues to unfold around the world, I want you to know that these things continue to happen because of what Jesus says in Mark 13. Now, again, this comes with a word of caution. During the Holocaust, texts like Mark 13 were used by Hitler and the Nazi regime to justify the poor and mistreatment of Jewish people. The Jewish people are responsible for crucifying Jesus, they would say. The Jewish people are responsible for what landed on them in AD 70. And because of that disgusting image that Hitler and the Nazis perpetrated, they justified the mistreatment of the Jewish people in the Holocaust. And there are echoes of that language still around our culture today. And brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, you need to know that every human being is created in the image of God. And you need to defend anyone who challenges anyone based on their ethnicity or their race. The Jewish people in Israel today were created to be image bearers of God. The people in Gaza today were created to be image bearers of God. And anyone who uses any text to suggest anything other than that doesn't know God. There is never a cause for anti-Semitism or racism. And as you watch the news, don't be sucked into the lies. But as God's people, we also need to understand God has expectations of us. Jerusalem was his city, and it rejected his Messiah. Many of you guys know that back in January, some of us were blessed to go and see Israel. And I've told some of you this, there was a weird moment. You can, when you come close to Jerusalem, we entered from the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the Kidron Valley, which looks at the city of Jerusalem, exactly the place where Jesus gives this message in Mark 13. We stood on that mountain, and we overlooked that city. And when we first arrived, it was unexpected to me. 
Because you can still to this day see what is the Temple Mount. And on top of that Temple Mount is a gold dome. It's not a mosque, it's the dome of the rock under the control of uh, the Muslim authority. And I remember seeing that and being disgusted by that. Not out of disrespect for people of Muslim heritage, but out of an understanding that that was the holy place of God. That that was where the people of God for generations would come to offer sacrifices and interact with God. That that was the place where Jesus came. And it bothered me. And then it dawned on me. It's like that precisely because of what Jesus said. That I'll send my servants, the prophets, and they were rejected. And I'll send my son, surely they'll hear my son. And they killed him. And he said, I'll give it to another nation. I'll give it to another people. What happened in AD 70 and what Jesus prepared his disciples for in Mark 13 continues to shape the events of our world today. But these two truths remain. God has vindicated his son. Jesus is the son of God who has replaced a temple structure, who has replaced a temple mount, and it's in Jesus that you find grace and hope and peace and forgiveness. Nowhere else. It's in Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God's blessing of peace and mercy and forgiveness rests with you. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, whether you live in America or Palestinian territory or Israeli territory, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that's where your hope is found. And 40 years before that catastrophic event happened in Jerusalem, Jesus was telling his disciples that truth. Well, this morning we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ because he is exactly who he said he is and because God vindicated that message even in those catastrophic events. If you want to believe and follow Jesus this morning, we want you to do that. We want you to give your life to him, commit your life to him and follow him. And if we can bless you with our prayers or any other way as God's people, we invite you to come while we stand and sing.